Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English at Oxford University. Uh, and I'm here today talking to Mark Ford, who's Professor of English at University College London. Uh, and we're here to talk about the poetry of uh, Thomas Hardy, partly considered through the lens of all the things that have been written about Hardy in the London Review of Books over the last decade. So, Mark, I thought a good place to start might be with a really early poem of Hardy's and a poem that's often said to be uh, like a marker poem or a signature poem of Hardy's is the 1867 poem Neutral Tones, written when he's still quite a young man, 26 or 27. Do you think that's a good way of characterising that poem? Well, Hardy um, wanted to be a poet before he uh, found fame as a novelist and uh, he spent his 20s writing poetry and he was convinced that uh, his destiny, his vocation was to be a poet. And he tells us in the life that he wrote lots and lots of poems um, in his 20s, early 20s, when he was living in London and uh, he was working as an architect's clerk. Uh, and about 30 of these survive from this period. And Neutral Tones is undoubtedly the most um, moving and impressive of these poems. And it's one of the great poems, in my opinion, of the canon. But I would put in a word for the other early Hardy poems, which are interesting in a slightly contorted way often. Neutral Tones is rather different from them. They're mainly sonnets. Neutral Tones is is um, uh, 16 lines long. It's four stanzas of uh, four lines each. And it uses the um, uh, in memoriam uh, rhyme scheme as well. Should we read it? Why not? Do you want to read it? Go ahead, I will. Uh, Neutral Tones... We stood by a pond that winter day and the sun was white as though chidden of God and a few leaves lay on the starving sod. They had fallen from an ash and were grey. Your eyes on me were as eyes that rove over tedious riddles of years ago and some words played between us to and fro on which lost the more by our love. The smile on your mouth was the deadest thing alive enough to have strength to die, and a grin of bitterness swept thereby, like an ominous bird a wing. Since then, keen lessons that love deceives and rings with wrong have shaped to me your face and the God-cursed sun and a tree and a pond edged with greyish leaves. It's an extraordinary poem, isn't it? Full of um, bitterness, but also full of a kind of tenderness as well it's a kind of anti-love poem isn't it it's it's a love it's a poem about the loss of energy the loss of all commitment the loss of belief belief in love in poetry perhaps uh, in romance certainly in god as well that uh, sun which is white as though chidden of god uh, is particularly kind of haunting and it's a poem that registers a, a deep trauma uh, i think a, a sense that 
um, Hardy has extraordinarily found a way in this, it's very early poem, this is the mid-Victorian period, he's yeah, t- 27, he's found a way of expressing all the kinds of negativity that we associate with later writers such as Samuel Beckett. And he's done it by inverting all the traditional tropes of love poetry. And the the lines themselves have a kind of crumbling feel, they don't build up to any kind of resonant statement. The God-cursed son possibly has a bit of magniloquent mm. defiance about it, but Overall, the poem is about entropy, and I think even the God Cursed Son is kind of en- loses whatever kind of energy or protest or defiance that it has. It's got acrid clarity, was how um, a, a, a reviewer of 1926 decried it. That's good, isn't it? It, it is good, and it, it, it's, a, it's a traumatic scene that is observed and is unforgettable, and yet the unforgettableness. <laughs> is actually just telling you that love deceives, which is like the oldest thing uh, in the book, isn't it? Yes. The entropy is is, is, is brilliantly dramatised, isn't it? Because he returns to the opening scene in the last verse, uh, but the but the grey leaves have become greyish. So there's a kind of decline or a kind of diminishment that's happening even within the language of the poetry. Yes, it's lost its precision in some way. I mean, it is, yes, like, say, Keats' La Belle Dame Sans Merci, we're back with the night alone and palely loitering by a lake uh, in winter. Um, and it actually, it, it also captures... Um, period of terrible exhaustion and despair for Hardy when his kind of first London career came to an end, when he's about 27. He had what we would call a nervous breakdown, I think, and he was uh, unable to concentrate and he lost all kind of energy and motivation. And he writes in uh, in The Life um, about, how, in terms very similar to the terms used in neutral tones of how he's lost belief and he's kind of basically fading away and falling. And it's interesting that he left behind when he went from London back to his home in Higher Bockhampton, all the poetry that he'd written, poetry he'd written out on leaves of paper, and they, like the leaves of the tree, have fallen and were abandoned. And it's a poem of of the most extreme kinds of abandonment, that that it conjugates this abandonment uh, in, in all kinds of different ways, and there's no way of um, finding anything to believe in at the end of the poem. Mm-hmm. There's a terrific essay by Hugh Horton in the LRB in which he says at one point that the great theme of Hardy's poetry is the haunting, unpredictable persistence of the past as it may materialise in the memory of things and places. And Neutral Tones absolutely gets that, doesn't it? In, in that sense, it is a signature poem, isn't it? Yes, and, and places are absolutely crucial to Hardy and things which have a particular uh, clarity in this poem. But what, what's interesting, it's a signature poem, yes, but normally a poet... Uh, writes a signature poem like Proof Rock or, or Mariana or whatever, and then goes on to write much more in that vein. What's peculiar about Neutral Tones is having discovered what most critics say is, is, is his voice, in this, his poetic voice in this particular poem, that Hardy then doesn't write any more poems or writes very few poems and doesn't publish uh, this or other poems for until 1898. So now you mentioned the life, and we probably ought to say something to explain what 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 that is and and Hardy's role in it. Well, it was his his uh, it was his autobiography. Um, he dictated it to Florence, and it was initially published. Florence's second wife. Uh, his second yeah. wife, uh, Florence Hardy, was initially published under her name, but in it he reveals uh, lots of details about his life, but he disguises lots of others, um, and so we don't know exactly who the beloved in Neutral Tones is. It's probably Eliza Nichols, who was um, a maid with whom he had, seems to have had a romance when they were living in London 
He was in Westbourne Park Villas and she was just round the corner in Orsett Terrace. And the ponds have actually even been located to <laughs> being the okay. ponds near her family home right. in Sussex. So it's it's very probably about her. So here we have a, a poet who's famous, if, if, if anything, he's famous for being a poet of Wessex. And yet, as you, as you mentioned a moment ago, from 1862, so from quite an early and f- formative stage of his life, he's in London. And this is a poem that, as you just said, comes out of a London experience. Can you say something about that? There's something about the role that, that London and, and, and a London sojourn con- contributes to the, the making of the writer? Um, certainly in terms of poetry. He spent this five years in London, 1862, 1867, immersing himself in poetry. And he committed himself to poetry. Um, and he believed that that was where his his destiny lay and he part of the exhaustion was because he read too much poetry mm. and was obsessed with poetry and he sent his poetry out to magazines or so he tells us uh, and it was sent back and so he never had anything published and he's rather coy about it in the life he talks about being near living near Swinburne and he could have got to know him and he probably got out a slim volume shuffled one off uh, and then been embarrassed about it later in life uh, but this was his great gamble I often think in terms of poetry that he he committed himself to poetry and he lost and neutral tones is the record of that loss and that failure so having uh, um, committed himself to the romance and enchantment of poetry stroke and love was connected to it with his, his flirtations with women about which we don't know a lot. He then had this nervous breakdown and returned to Dorset and took up life. Um, His day job was as an architect, but he was also writing his first uh, novel, An Indiscretion in the Life of an Heiress, or The Poor Man and the Lady, as it was initially called. Uh, But the the key moment in terms of, of his poetic career was when he went in 1870, he was sent by Crickmay, his employer, to St Juliet in Cornwall, and it was there that he met Emma. So this is all about the Victorians um, taking over old churches and improving them. So that's why he's there. Yeah, Hardy was a Gothic architect yes. uh, and, and uh, later regretted having destroyed so many um, churches as he saw it. But uh, he, yes, he arrived. It was a long day. He got up at four o'clock and he had to um, walk into Dorchester, get a train to Yeovil, train from Yeovil to Plymouth, then from Plymouth to Launceston. Launceston, he hired a pony trap he arrived at the rectory late that evening and he was met by a woman in brown. And that was Emma. And he, he remembers these these events years later, doesn't he, in, in, a, in a series of poems called The Poems of 1912-13, of which I suppose one of the most striking and memorable is, is a poem called I Found Her Out There which is a, a, a remarkable poem of, 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 of memory, isn't it? And, and sort of spontaneous, almost sort of a Proustian recollection. Yes, it, I mean, it is fascinating that Hardy was obviously intoxicated with Emma and enchanted with the Cornish landscape, but he didn't write any poems about about mm. it uh, at the time. He did write A Pair of Blue Eyes, which is uh, largely set in, in Cornwall, um, or partly set there. But after Emma died... The experiences that he shared with her on that coast from 1870 to 1874 returned to his memory with the most startling power. Uh, And in poems like I I Found Her Out There or Beanie Cliff, Mm. he recreates her in that landscape. And it's fundamental, I think, to his imagination that she is there in the landscape. He's not quite part of it. She's the one in control in this particular space. Um, He talks... um, uh, Uh, Oh, the opal and the sapphire of that wandering western sea. I'm quoting from Beanie Cliff now. And the woman riding high above with bright hair flapping free. 
the woman whom I loved so and who loyally loved me. So it's as if she is almost a part of the landscape, like the, 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 um, the genius or genia loci of the landscape. And the same, and I found her out there. She's, he, he's regretting the fact that she's buried in, in Dorset. Um, so she does not sleep by those haunted heights, the Atlantic smites and the blind gales sweep, whence she would often gaze at Dundagel's famed head while the dipping blaze dyed her face fire red. Thanks for listening to this extract from Series 1 of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other close reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.